Good morning again. Uh, I will start by saying I love the church, and I love this church, but I just love the church in general, and we'll talk more about what the church is as, as we go through today in this series, um, but it's, it's interesting what we read in the book of Revelation, and that's where we will be. We'll be in Revelation 1 today, and then for the next seven weeks, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, if you want to open up there, but it's, it's interesting because the book of Revelation is a book that, that has this mystery to it and people have lots of opinions and people have lots of arguments about it. But uh, what is oftentimes forgotten is, is the central message of the book of Revelation. And the central message is that Jesus is the Savior of the world who is to be worshipped. And if there's a second message, it's continue to serve Him even in the midst of difficulty. And today as we begin this study of, of what Jesus says to the church, uh, it's fascinating because you'd think that if Jesus was going to talk to this group of people who are persecuted, these churches who are being persecuted, who are struggling, who are worrying about where their next meal is going to come uh, from, who are losing family members over this thing called Christianity, you'd think they'd like give them a pat on the back and say, hey, you know, it's going to be okay, just be courageous, I'm here for you. But the first thing that we see Jesus do is jump right into, hey, there's some things you're not doing right in church. And I think it shows us that no matter what we are going through, no matter how difficult our lives are, church matters. And it matters that we do church the way that Jesus has called us to do church. And, and maybe, I don't know your church backgrounds, but maybe you've been a, a part of a church and, and you've gone, wow, when I was going through a hard time, that church, there was no help there. There was, there was no joy there. I found nothing of, of encouragement in that church. And you were probably part of the problem. You were probably contributing to a bad church. Uh, so let me say that first, if you're like, oh yeah, starting to point fingers. But the second thing is you might have gone to a church that wasn't doing it the way that Jesus wanted you to do it. Because when you do church the way that Jesus calls you to do church, then, then, it, then it matters to every aspect of our lives. I mean, whether we're hungry or whether we're being persecuted or whether we're losing family members, Church becomes an integral part of dealing with those things and helping us through those things. Now here's, here's the problem in, that I see in the world and especially in our country is that, that we don't really know what the Bible says church should be like. I know that like if certain people were listening to me as I just said what I said about how you might have been part of a church, they're thinking like, well, the church should have just given me more money, you know? And, and then if I, I would have got through that financial situation, I wouldn't have had to switch churches. I wouldn't have to be here this morning. Uh, and, and that's... It's not in the Bible anywhere. The church just needs to give you money. And what has happened over time since the church began a couple thousand years ago is that we've lost really what the Bible, what Jesus says about church and how it is to operate. And what you find if you were to ask people their opinions on churches, you'd have like a million different opinions on, on how church should go, what church should do, how it should be run, what it needs to be focused on, what it shouldn't do, what it should do, as you saw in the video that we just played. And, and most of those things would be based on either the cultural norm for church in America today or personal preference. Like this is the way that I feel like it should be. 
But oftentimes what is forgotten, and this is so weird and so sad, is what Jesus thinks about church. And it's funny because church is a group of people who follow Jesus together, yet when we talk about church, we forget about what Jesus might think. It's like, well, we follow Jesus, but we don't really care what he says about our church. I mean, that's just my personal life I'll think about Jesus, but when it comes to us and our gatherings and what we do when we're not together on Sundays, like, who cares? what Jesus thinks. I mean, I follow him alone. And, and what's so interesting about that is when you read the New Testament, what you find is that the majority of books are not written to individuals, they're written to churches. And a lot of times things we read in the Bible, we go, well, that just applies to me, but really it's about how a church is supposed to look. And the book of Revelation is, is no different than that and we're going to look at Revelation 1 4 through 20 today and and, and what we're going to find there is really Jesus kind of uh, analogy of what church is which kind of helps us to get to the definition of it and then in the coming weeks what we'll find and this will become clear as we look at at the verses today is that we will study these things that Jesus says to seven separate churches in Asia Minor the region of the world called Asia Minor and in them we see the heart of Jesus for his church. We see the things that he's like, you shouldn't do this, you should do this. We see the things that he cares about. It's not maybe what we might think in modern American culture today. Nowhere is Jesus going to say, have more people. <laughs> it's not part of the, the language that he uses. Nowhere is he going to say, like, have better sound equipment. Nowhere is he going to say, like, do things in a way that makes people feel more comfortable when they show up on a Sunday morning. All things that we try to do here, on, on, we try to do the best that we can at Creekside, but Jesus doesn't talk about those things. He talks about things that he finds, I think, far more important. And so I won't read verses 1 through 3 today because the rest of chapter 1 is basically going to explain uh, what 1 through 3 already says. And so Revelation 1, 4 through 5, this is what it says, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So John is writing to these seven churches. This is a letter by a guy named John. Now John is really important. It's really important to understand who John is. John was a guy that had a dad who was a fisherman. And in his culture, when Jesus walked the earth and John walked the earth, you became what your dad was. It wasn't like today where it's like, what do I want to be when I grow up? It was like, well, my dad's a fisherman. I'll become a fisherman. And John meets a guy named John, who we call John the Baptist, and he starts following him around. And John the Baptist is saying, there's somebody who's coming who's the Messiah, the promised one of God who's going to set things right on the earth. And so John, our John here in this passage, starts following John the Baptist around because he's like, this guy knows something that I want to know. And then... He meets Jesus. Jesus walks up to him, says, you're fishing, uh, but you can come be fishers of men, follow me. John looks at Jesus, says, there's something special about this guy. I will follow him. He becomes one of Jesus' closest friends and followers while Jesus was alive on earth. He has access to Jesus in a way that only two other disciples had. He's there when Jesus raises a... a, a um, 
a Gentile's daughter from the grave. He's there when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he'll die the next day. He has, he's there when Jesus is transfigured into his glorified state on, on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, as we now call it. And so John has this special access to Jesus. Now, here's the other really cool part about John. He follows Jesus faithfully from the time he meets him until the time he dies as far as scripture tells us. You know, we think like John's not perfect. We know that the Bible makes clear that no, nobody's perfect. But John has like the most boring testimony as we call it in Christian circles ever. Like I met this guy named Jesus and then for like 80 years, I just tried to live for him. I just really liked him. I saw that he was the savior of the world and I did my best to serve him. And when we encounter John here, he's upwards to 100 years old when the book of Revelation is written. When he's writing this letter to these seven churches, he's almost 100 years old is the best guess that we can make. And he's faithfully served Jesus for like 80 years. So faithful in serving Jesus that he was going around telling people, hey, Jesus is the savior of the world. He died for your sins. He got out of the grave. It's Easter, you know. And, and so faithful to that that history tells us, tradition tells us, that John was boiled alive in oil and survived it. And now when we encounter him, and we'll see this in a second, he's been exiled to an island called Patmos. It was basically like an old-fashioned Alcatraz. We'll put all the criminals on an island. They can try to survive out there. And so picture this. This is the guy writing to these seven churches. It is a man who has faithfully served Jesus for 80 years, being willing to be boiled alive like the worst thing I could possibly think of, and is now exiled on an island trying to stay alive as an almost 100-year-old, but yet still serving Jesus faithfully. If you get a letter from him... It's a pretty big deal. I mean, like, this is like, this is like getting a letter from Billy Graham about how we should lead people to Jesus, but Billy Graham that actually sat down and talked to Jesus on a daily basis and knew him well and whom Jesus would have called a close personal friend. I mean, if Jesus had secrets, like John's the guy he's telling them to, and now John is writing a letter to these seven churches. And I think if you're one of these people in these seven churches you're really paying attention but even 2,000 years later we should go oh John's writing this this is like not just some guy that's writing a letter about how we should conduct church and about how we should live as Christians this is John who hung out with Jesus he writes to these seven churches uh, and these churches are written to because they are very strategic. This is important. They are in the postal centers of the world at that time, and they form a geographical circle from Patmos. And so John is not just writing this letter so that these seven churches can learn from them, or this letter so that these seven churches can learn from them. He's writing to these churches because he wants this message in the book of Revelation to spread to every single church. I would even offer every single church that would ever exist in including ours today. These churches weren't like better than other churches. We'll see that. They had lots of problems. They simply were strategic churches to get out the message that we are going to see in this book. Now here's the other thing. He says grace and peace and, and that's a typical type of greeting and, and, and we move on from there. He says, Revelation 1, 5 and 6, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has, this is key, freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and our and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. John says, look, this greeting, this grace and peace greeting is from 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us this wonderful, maybe the greatest description of Jesus that we could ever see. He calls Jesus three different things that are really important. He calls him the faithful witness. As you look, if you've ever taken time to read the book of Revelation, if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. Just put away everything you've ever been taught and just go try to read it and say, what do I think God is saying through this? And then you'll never get it right, but just try it. And it's a beautifully written book. And, and here's, here's the deal. In the book, one of the key themes is that the Christians who are being persecuted and might be killed for their faith in Jesus, uh, John in his letter is saying to them through a vision uh, with Jesus, he's saying, hey, be a faithful witness to the end. Testify to the truth of Christianity even if it costs you your life. And here, before he even says that to him, he's saying, Jesus is the faithful witness. And this is the thing about Jesus. At the end of his life, right before he dies on a cross, we think, well, that's just what Jesus had to do because I had sin and he gives in to my whims, you know? I mean, that's how we picture him. But he says, literally, if I wanted to, I could call down a legion of angels and they could come and save me. And instead, Jesus is like, no. I am going to continue this thing that I have started when I was born in a manger, continued as I've lived perfectly and preached and taught to the masses. And it's a thing where people are going to be saved forevermore. And I'm not going to give up on it because it hurts. I'm not going to quit my mission because it hurts, because it's difficult. And so he, in some ways, is not just a witness. He is like the center of this thing called Christianity, but he witnesses to it by saying, I'm not gonna take a different path. This thing is so important and so real and so true that people are sinners that need a savior that I will die on a cross to testify to that truth and to save them from their sins. He's called the firstborn from the dead. That's really important. It's a reference to Easter. He was resurrected from the grave as we talked about just one week ago. And it's important because John is gonna write this letter to these people and, and in it, before maybe they even were aware of it, he's going to say things like, hey, you might die. That's a big time bummer, right? Like, I'm like, uh, can we return to Cinder, you know? Send it back to Batmus. I didn't want to hear it. But, but it's important to know that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead when you might die because it says, look, like Jesus died and rose again, even if you die for this thing called Christianity, this faith that you now have, you will have the power of the resurrection. You have everything that comes along with conquering the grave, the hope that comes with the peace that comes with the joy that comes with it, and even more importantly, the eternal life in a glorified state that we call heaven with Jesus. It's all part of it. So he says, look, Jesus died, and he'll say, you might too, but Jesus died and he was resurrected. And then he calls Jesus the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's a big deal because these people are suffering at the hands of rulers. And ultimately what John is saying is, hey, I know that it feels like you are the low man on the totem pole in this society and that, that you're serving Jesus is making you even lower and nobody likes you and it's really bad, but know this, somebody supersedes all of that and it's the Jesus that you follow. These religious leaders, these political leaders, none of them are as powerful as the one whom you follow, whom you have been named after as Christians. And so John, right from the beginning, is like, hey, here's the deal. I know that what you're going through is hard, but Jesus and following him makes it all worth it. That's a big deal. 
And this is really what being a church is. It, it is a group of people, and this is what it says about Jesus again, a group of people who has had their sins removed, who have been freed from sin by the blood of Jesus. And what we believe as Christians and as a church is that we can be freed from sin by accepting Jesus as our Savior, as we sometimes say. And that is this. Sin, if you are not a Christian, is in complete control of your life. You are unable to not sin, and you are unable to get out from under what will ultimately be the destruction of sin, and that is death eternally. And Jesus knew that, and he saw you in your sin, unable to break free from it, unable to break free from the consequences of it. And so he came down to earth, and he died on a cross, and he said this, if you believe that I died on a cross and I got out of the grave and you will follow me, then I will set you free from all of that. You will no longer have to give in to the things that you don't want to do. And we've all kind of been there, right, where we just feel like we can't conquer. But Jesus says, with me, you can conquer sin. You can remove that thing from your life. And you no longer have to worry about where you will go when you will die because you will spend eternity with me, your Savior. And a church is a group of people that gather together that believe that. If I was here by myself today, I would not be a church, even if my sermon was exactly the same, even if it was perfect for that matter, I would not be a church. If you all were here with me and and you weren't Christians, all of you, and I was still the only Christian here, we would not be a church. A group of people that gets together to, to be Uh, an atheist group. I I know somebody like that actually and I think they even might call themselves a church. Sometimes not a church. A a church is a group of people who have been freed from their sins by the blood of Jesus and they gather together. That's that's the, the simplest, easiest definition of church and Paul makes that clear. But then he says this really cool thing that's so countercultural. He says not only has he freed us from something, but he saved us for a purpose, and that is to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever. Kingdom of priests is a, a phrase that goes back to Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses has all of the Israelites, hundreds of thousands of people. They've just come out of Egypt and the slavery of Egypt. And God starts speaking to them. And he says, you will be. My treasured possession, you will be my holy priesthood. There's two really important things that come from that about you and I who are part of the church who have been freed by the blood of Jesus. You see, a lot of the people that will receive this letter that, Paul, or that John is writing are people who, who have, are Jewish and they've been kicked out of the synagogue and they are being made to feel like they are not a part of, of their nationality. They are not part of their, their family's heritage. They are not a part of the family religion. And, and John looks at him and says, hey, time out. It is the Jewish people who have missed the truth. It's not you. You are following Jesus and the promises for you continue. And the other really important part of this, and this is just, I need you to pay attention to this and we have a great church with this and Easter proved this and I've already thanked you so maybe I'm preaching to the choir but all the more. This means that we have a job to do. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, I have saved some of you to be pastors and everybody else to be spectators. Like all of you are customers and I'll, I'll make a few people to be the people who are in charge of making sure that I'm worshipped. And that's what priests did. They were in charge of making sure that the temple had what it needed and, and God was worshipped in the way that God wanted to be worshipped. 
And, and John looks at these people, this group of people, these groups of people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, and he doesn't say, I have made some of you pastors and the rest of you spectators. He says, I, Jesus has saved us, each of us who are Christians, to be priests, to serve God faithfully. Now again, our church is great and I, we, have, we just talked about this in a meeting Monday night and how high of a percentage of people we have serving in our church but as our church grows and we gain new people that, that, that the world tells us that that percentage is going to shrink and ultimately it will be about 20% of the people doing 80% of the work and everybody else just being spectators. And, and man, it's my hope and my prayer that that will never be the case because when that's the case, it's not what a church is intended to be. It's not a, a holy priesthood of people coming together to serve God faithfully in the role that God has equipped them to serve in. It continues, Revelation 1-7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. So he kind of goes into this just worshipful, forward thinking thought that he seems to just kind of throw in there. But it's really important for a similar reason. These people are being persecuted and he says someday, and this is really important, right? Someday everybody will see that you're right. They'll mourn because they didn't accept Jesus as their savior. I'll be honest, that's comforting for me in some way. It's sad for me and hard for me to hear in, in some way, but it's also comforting, and especially as our country becomes uh, less and less uh, a nation full of Christian people. And, and I feel sometimes more and more every, every single year, it seems, I feel more and more like I'm in a minority and that I'm being told I'm wrong because I have this faith in Jesus and even more a faith in, in the word of God and what it says. And to know that someday, and maybe this is just a personality flaw on my part, but to know that someday I'm right and they're wrong, and, and that's going to be obvious to everybody, feels pretty good to me. I mean, I always think I know that anyway, so maybe I didn't need the encouragement, but, but, but in this instance, it's just good. John's like, hey, I get it. Like at this point, like the whole world is against you. I mean, it wasn't like us as American Christians who, you know, like, Again, they made the movie Noah and it doesn't fit and so I'm persecuted. But this is like the whole world is against this group of Christians, this small group of Christians, a growing group, but compared to how many Christians have lived have live on our planet today, this is like a small group of people who had accepted the gospel story. And he says, look, I know that it feels like you're in this small minority, but someday everybody will see that you are right and they are. We're wrong. And then he continues. Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's a little debate on whether this proves the deity of Jesus, which the Bible does prove. I don't know if this verse does or if this is just God the Father talking. But either way, the point is God is big and strong and powerful. The time the book of Revelation is written, emperor worship is at an all-time high. Caesar, you may have heard of him, ruler of the Romans, he was pushing for himself to be worshipped. you got to be a weirdo to do that. But he's pushing for himself to be worshipped. And one of the reasons that Christians are being persecuted is because they refuse. Like, well, I'm going to only worship God, and I'm going to worship God through Jesus. And so whether you get mad at me, whether you boil me, whether you kill me, I'm going to only worship God. Jesus. And the emperors didn't like this. And the emperors at the time, Caesar, would have called himself Almighty. 
The word's pretty self-explanatory, right? Almighty, right? And, and, and so there had to be this question like, man, okay, Jesus was awesome, and I think that he's God in heaven, but is he really all-powerful on this earth? Is he really in control of the things happening here? And John says, look, here's what God's saying. I am totally and utterly in control. I am beyond Caesar. I am beyond the Jewish leaders. I am beyond anybody that exists on the planet. I am in absolute control of every single thing that you know. I am the Almighty. He continues. John continues, Revelation 1, 9 through 11. And this is where we really get to the story. And this, uh, Revelation's cool and people, ah, uh, just read Revelation because it's awesome. I mean, everybody likes superhero movies today and I don't even like them. I think stupid, superheroes movies are stupid. They're always the same, like, okay, his weakness, we get it. And then he's gonna lose, but then he wins because he has some willpower or something. And you, like, you've seen them all, right? But the book of Revelation is written like a superhero movie and Jesus is the superhero. And, and I like it, even though I don't like most superhero movies. It's that well done, so read it. But this is when we really get to the story here. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John is praying on a Sunday. That's the Lord's day, the day Jesus was resurrected. He's praying in the spirit. And this is important for us as a, a church that, that maybe isn't so spiritual sometimes in, in the sense that we often think of spiritual and charismatic churches. But John is praying and it's not just like, a, like sometimes I get into the habit of, I can admit that, checklist prayer. Like, yep, prayed it, prayed it, prayed it. He's praying in the spirit. There's something powerful going on. He can feel the spirit of God moving him in his prayers. And then from behind him, he hears a loud voice like a trumpet and his it's like write down what you're about to see that's crazy i mean this is not like this this is again i just read revelation like this is this is something like he's praying in the spirit now he's got a trumpet voice coming at him and, and then this is what john does this makes sense in the next verses this is what john does i turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me Good idea if you hear a voice like a trumpet. I don't know what that means. I think it probably means it's just really loud. But, but he turns around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, this is not what we expect, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That's Jesus. Jesus called himself the son of man. The Old Testament pointed to one that would come that would be the son of man. He sees Jesus dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. This is craziness. And here's, uh, we'll get back to the lampstands in a second, but, but here's what we see. The lampstands are going to represent the church. We see that. It's like the one explanation for a sign in all of the book of Revelation that represent the church. And in the midst of the churches, we see Jesus. 
And Jesus is described in this crazy, crazy, awesome way. And it's really easy, and I've done this before when I've taught through the book of Revelation, to go, okay, what do each of these things mean? I mean, like, he's got hair like wool, and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. And to try to get into the details, and here's what happens. You miss the point when you get into the details of how Jesus looks here. Each of these things about Jesus are described in the Old Testament. And so what John is doing, what Jesus is doing, is he is reapplying the things that were stated about God the Father in the Old Testament to that of Jesus in the New Testament. And the point is this. Look, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy that you read in the Old Testament. And Jesus is incredibly awesome. You don't need to know the details to get the point. When John turns around and he sees Jesus glowing like a furnace and a sword coming out of his mouth, and his hair is white like wool, like, that's awesome. And and it's sad that Revelation gets picked apart so badly that we miss the cool imagery of it all. But let's not do that today. What we see when John turns around because he hears this voice like a trumpet is Jesus on fire. And he would have been blown away by it. And maybe later when the, the, the vision that is the book of Revelation ends and, and John is alone and he's reading his Old Testament, if he had one, he'd be like, oh, I see that this fulfills prophecy. But the, but the real thing to see is Jesus is absolutely incredible. And that is very important for the churches that are suffering at the hands of persecution. Now, the other part is this lampstand idea. And the lampstands would have actually been candlesticks, golden candlesticks. I found this at Goodwill, $3.99. I never understood how uh, uh, Colonel Mustard could kill with a candlestick until I picked up this candlestick right here. It's a it's very heavy, very nice one that I was going to return, but I felt guilty about it. Uh, we're supporting Goodwill. And, and so it's this, he sees these candlesticks, these seven candlesticks, and Jesus is in the midst of them. Now there's a couple things. This is really important. This is where we get to the heart of church and what church is and why church is important and why we should be focused on doing it right. And the first part that isn't connected to the church as much is that the candlestick was a representation of Israel. You've heard the term menorah before, right? And it is a candlestick. And so this is a representation of Israel. And so John in some way again is saying, look, I know it feels like you have started this new religion, but Christianity is the fulfillment of everything that the Jews have been looking forward to and hoping for forever. So don't get it wrong. And then this is the other part. The lampstand is first seen in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that the the Jewish people set up in the wilderness where God's presence was most fully manifest. Exodus 25, 37 through 40, this is what we read. Then make it seven lampstands and set them up on it so that the light, so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Now here's, this is crazy. This is some serious craziness. The Jewish people had just seen a mountain on fire that God spoke from and gave them the Ten Commandments. Now they're building a tent to God's specifications and God is saying, hey, put some lampstands in it. Fire, fire, you see that? My presence, this place will have my presence. I need some fire. And he says, I want you to build these just like, I want you to build this just like you saw on the mountain. 
Second Chronicles 4.20, the lampstands of pure gold with their lamps to burn in front of the inner sanctuary. That was the place of God's strongest presence. God is everywhere in some sense, but God is stronger seen in certain places. And in the Old Testament, it was in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And in 1 Kings 7, you see that the lampstands are part of the furnishings of the temple. 1 Kings 7 is the, is the opening day, if you will, of the temple, and, and the lampstands are there as part of the furnishings and then in Zechariah 4 14 we see that Zechariah has a vision about olive trees and lampstands and it says this these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth Jesus himself this is really key calls himself the light of the world and here we see Jesus standing in the middle of the lampstands that represent the church and this is what is so obvious when you know the history of the lampstands John, Jesus are looking at these seven churches and they are saying, you are a group of people who gather because you have been freed from sin and your job is to show Jesus to the world. Your job is to, show, is to shine brightly so that others may see what Jesus is like. So that others can know the presence of God and the attributes of God and understand the power of God, who God is, how God interacts with humanity, what God wants to do in the lives of people. We as a church, they as a church, we're a group of people freed from sin so that we could show off Jesus. I mean, there it is. Jesus standing, the Son of Man standing. Where is he standing? In the midst of the churches, the lampstands. And in this one beautiful, powerful piece of imagery, Jesus is saying, here's what you are. Creekside Bible Church or the church in Ephesus, here's what you are. You're a group of people that I have brought together by dying for your sins so that you can show the world who I am, what I'm about. And this is why, this is what makes church so important. And it's what makes understanding what Jesus says about church so important. Is that our job is to show off the presence and the power and the person of Jesus. That's why we exist. We don't just exist so that you can feel good. We don't exist for the sole sake of relationship. We don't even exist just to make an impact in the community for the sake of impact in the community. We exist to show people Jesus. And Jesus is in the midst of us. And that's really cool too, right? Whether you're being persecuted or you're just showing up here on Sundays and, and you're like, you know, I come and I'm with these people. But you're not just with these people. When we're gathered as a church, we are gathered in the presence of of Jesus, and he could not have made it more explicitly clear than he did with this imagery. Just like the candles sat at the inner sanctuary in the tabernacle, in the presence of God, so the church now sits in the presence, sits in the presence of Jesus. Just as the, the candlesticks lit the way as people would have entered into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was uniquely in the temple, so now the church sits in the presence of Jesus. And they exist to show him 
for who he is. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, it continues. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's hilarious. Um, that, I mean, that's what I would have done, but I just, it's so funny to write that in. And it sh- I think it shows that the Bible's inspired because I would have left it out. I'd have been like, I stood there and thought, I'm not scared at all, you know? I mean, but John just, I fell down dead. And then he placed his right hand on John and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living when I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. I could have preached this right here last week on Easter. Jesus said, look, I conquered death and I reign over death. And it's very important because if we follow Jesus, we need to know that no matter what, Jesus is in control of death. He wasn't too big or too small to overcome it when he died. And now he sits in heaven and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And no matter what we face, no matter whether we think that that it's cancer that'll kill us or terrorists that'll kill us or whatever it might be, it's ultimately Jesus who is in charge of death. And when he says this, he isn't talking about our physical bodies. I don't think Jesus cares as much about our physical bodies as we do. He's talking about our souls. And he's saying, Look, don't be scared. Don't be scared, John. I'm in control of your eternity. And I have the power over death because I conquered it by getting out of the grave and rising forevermore. It continues, Revelation 1, 19 and 20. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seems to imply that each church has an angel that, that kind of uh, helps us and uh, that's a topic for a different day but that's what the language suggests here but the really key for us today is that we are a lampstand. Creekside Bible Church is a lampstand. Now here's here's the here's the hook of it all. This is this is the important part. You say, okay, I'm a lampstand. I mean, what does that mean that I need to do? And and here's just let me get you up to speed. If you're not a Christian, and you show up here each and every week, then you're not part of it really. You can't be a part of a church. You can go to a church. You can show up at a church. But if you're not a Christian, you can't be part of a church until you are freed from your sin by the blood of Jesus. And I believe there's some people who gather with us consistently who just need to become a part of what we're doing by accepting Jesus as the Savior of the world. And some of you have never given your lives to Jesus and you're like, I just feel good when I come to church. You have no idea what church is. You're not even a part of this yet. You show up and we like that. We're glad you're here and I'm gonna keep telling you about Jesus every single week and so you might as well just say, Jesus, yeah, I need to give you myself. I want to be... I want to be freed from my sins and I want to be a part of these people because I see something different in them. And then this, this is, and this is so key. Recognize that when the church isn't showing off Jesus, it isn't doing its job. I've referenced this before, um, but I read a book. Uh, they like Jesus but hate the church and it's a book about how people really like the idea of Jesus but they don't really like what they see in church. And there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, First reason is that people don't really know who Jesus is sometimes. And so they see this hippie guy that just 
told everybody that they were right all the time and said, feel good about yourself. I don't care about any standards or anything like that. And then they look at the church and say, hey, they have a standard. And so, I, I mean, I, I don't like the standard. I don't like the church, but I do like Jesus. That's a false view of Jesus. Jesus told people when he thought they were wrong, and he told them more harshly than we tell them oftentimes as a church. And so sometimes that's the problem. But I think the greater problem is that the church has not taken this role seriously. We have not said, I need to look, we need to look like Jesus, we need to talk like Jesus, we need to express Jesus to the world, and we have allowed for ourselves to become something far different than the representation of Jesus. And so when people go, yeah, I like Jesus, but not the church, it's because the church looks nothing like Jesus. And so here's one thing that if you're a Christian and you're part of this church, you need to have in your head, it is our job, including you as a priest, it is our job to show the world what Jesus looks like. That is a huge responsibility. I mean, that changes in my mind the way we do everything. When we're here on Sunday mornings and we're gathered together, man, if we're just like not showing love to anybody and we're sitting in our seat like, I'm just here to get filled up today. That's not Jesus. Like Jesus poured out his life to die for the sins of the world. He didn't show up on earth going, man, I'm here just to see how much they'll give me. I'm here to get rich and feel good and I'm here to have them all make me happy. I'm here so that other people can serve me. No, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. The Bible says that verbatim. And so I think that something inside of Christians, and our church is pretty good, but even more, like we just need to wake up and say everything that we do as a church needs to show the world what Jesus is like because we are a lampstand. The flame of Jesus is burning in us and the question is only whether or not we are gonna cover it up or not. Man, if you were doing anything that prevents this church when you are here or when you're not here, when you're gathered or when you're scattered, if you're doing anything that prevents us from showing what Jesus is like to the world, then stop it. I mean, if you're just like, oh, I'll just give in to this one sin and it won't be a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal because you're part of this church. There's people looking at you and knowing about the things you're doing and they're going, wow, is that what Jesus looks like? Is that what Jesus was about? Stop. You're getting in the way of us doing our job and you need to take seriously us showing off Jesus to the world. And here's the, here's the last part that I just think is so important as we, as we say, okay, Creekside Bible Church, is, it's a lampstand. Just like church in Ephesus, we are a lampstand. Our job is to show Jesus off. There's one more thing and I, I think it's this. You just need to be a part of this church in a way that allows for us to glow in a way that allows for us to just shine so that people can't help but, but look and say, wow, this Jesus guy must be incredible because they say he's better than them and they're pretty awesome. And I think what we do is we make this excuse. We make it personally and we make it corporately and we say, well, Jesus was perfect, I'm not. And there's no way I could ever be like Jesus and so I'm not gonna take that role seriously. I agree with you, we're not perfect, but the role is given to us by Jesus, and so apparently he thought we could do it. Apparently he thought we could shine so bright that the world would know exactly what he looks like. I mean, he didn't like to send, send holograms back, he didn't leave, 
He didn't leave his own personal Jesus video. You know, he didn't write a book except for the Bible, but uh, he didn't write like uh, a book saying this is exactly what I'm like and I'm going to give you a million details. He gave us a book that told his story, but there's the Bible even tells us that like most of uh, what Jesus did and said was actually left out of that book. He left, guess who? You and I, the church, to show the world who Jesus is. And here's, here's the thing that I think and that I believe, and I think this is, this is a year. Uh, our church, and I, I've talked about this in meetings, but I haven't actually said it publicly yet, and this is, my, this is going into my fourth year as the pastor of this church, and, and, and I think that, that if you look at the progression we've had, it was like we had to tear some things down, and we had to make some hard decisions because there was some unhealthiness, and, and there was some things that weren't going very well. And, and the second year was like, okay, now let's try to lay a foundation here at this church so that we can start to really show the world who Jesus is. But, but you know, if we're, if we're burning too bright right now, and it's all, I don't know, you can be the wrong color flame, I'm mixing metaphors, but like if, if it just looks wrong, then that's not good, and we want to look right. And so we laid a foundation and said, okay, this gives us something to build on. In the last year, we've really said, okay, now, now we can look at that foundation and say, where are the holes? What do we need to do better? What, what kind of needs to be in place for our church to be everything that Jesus intended to be? And I believe with all my heart, and I've said this since the very beginning, that this year, year four, is going to be the year when we start to show the world Jesus. When we say, look, we are, we are on fire and impassioned to serve this man who lived and died for the sins of the world, and we are passionate about doing whatever it takes whether it be meeting needs in the community or starting new ministries or whatever it takes to show people who Jesus is and how wonderful he is and how awesome he is and I think this is the year when this happens but it only happens if you make a decision to say we are going to be a lampstand that lets the flame burn bright Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus is giving a sermon and in the middle of this sermon, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to be a part of that. But if you are a Christian, this morning what I'm asking is that you think about your life and you say, is my light hidden or is it shining bright? Am I contributing to the flame that is Creekside Bible Church so that the world can know what Jesus looks like, what Jesus is like, what Jesus does, what Jesus thinks, what Jesus wants? Am I contributing to that? And I want to finish how I started a lot of us go, well, I just got so much, you know? There's just so much going on in my life, and right now I'm just trying to keep my head above water. These people were like, I mean, literally, John was boiled when this vision comes to him. I mean, that's like keeping your head above water, right? I mean, in the most real gruesome sense, that is keeping your head above water. And Jesus shows up and, hey, John, pat on the back, man, just feel better. No, he says, hey, do church right. Show me off to the world. And so whatever it is that is preventing you and you're like, well, if this just gets figured out, then I'll get around to showing off Jesus and I'll really contribute to, to the church and I'll really show who Jesus is and what he's about. Like, your day was not as bad as John's. Your last year was not as bad as John's. 
And Jesus shows up, says, hey, don't be scared, but make sure you get to these churches and tell them exactly what they need to do because, because it's my plan for showing me off. And this world, this dying world, this world that with lots of people going to hell needs to know about me, it's the only way they can be saved. And so I just ask that you reflect and you say, what, what am I doing to contribute to show Jesus off in Creekside Bible Church or what am I not doing and what do I need to fix? And I think that if you answer that question, then this church is gonna become what a church should be. And that is a, a glowing, fiery vessel uh, with Jesus in the center. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just, I wanna start by, by praying for this year, God, in, um, in our church and, and God, uh, We've tried to become a, a, a church according to your word and, and not just, you know, an entity that has some Christians in it, Lord. And, and God, I believe in the people we have. You know that's the reason I'm here. I believe that you, some of these people I've been with nine years, God, at this church before pastoring it. And I, and I believe in the ability of, of the people here to teach Wilsonville and Tualatin and Sherwood and Tiger and Kaiser and the surrounding areas about who you are and to impact people with the truth of, of you, Jesus. And God, I think this next year is going to be great. I think we're gonna see people know you, become Christians, God. I think we're gonna see lives changed. I think we're gonna see your power in a unique and powerful way. But Lord, none of it happens unless the people in our church, the people who sit in front of me, stand behind me right now, God, make a decision to let their lights shine, God. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would, that we would remember the importance of of you. And, and God, it's so easy to go, it won't matter if I don't show Jesus off and he's all powerful, he'll figure it out. But Lord, as we remember Easter and the power of your resurrection and we remember how much you have done for us, God, it's absolutely essential that we share it. And I pray that we would be a church that would share it with all of our mights and all of our hearts and God, we would be just a, a church on fire. God, and, and, and I pray that, God, our lampstand would have to get bigger because the fire, you, God, are burning so bright in our midst. I love you, Lord, and I pray these things in your name. Amen.